Today our passage is from Amos 1-3 through 2-3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Pathedon and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. And thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerouath. And Moab shall die amid uproar and shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Good morning. It's been a few weeks since we've taken a look at the book of Amos here. We are in the process of reformatting some home groups where they're going to follow this sermon series. So I've been providing materials for our home group facilitator so that he could do that. So join up on a home group and you guys can delve a little bit deeper into this very simple text. It's just so easy to read this and know exactly what it means, right? We're just going to do a quick recap of that intro that was done a few weeks ago, and then we'll take a look at the verses for this morning. Let me start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We know that it is living, and everything from Genesis to Revelation has something for us. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that in your dynamic way of ministering to each person's life in a very personal, individual way, that you would speak to them through this text, that you would touch them in such a way that it is not merely information, knowledge, it is not merely a conviction or some sort of feeling, but God, that it changes us, that it transforms us, conforms us more into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amos, as we know, was a shepherd, a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore trees in uh, my own term. He was a sheep-loving Lorax. And so he's from this little city called Tekoa in Judah and Bethlehem. Still exists there, still a city there, still all the houses and apartments. You can go to Tekoa today, it's still there. Nothing fancy, though. It's just kind of a regular town. He lived in the 8th century B.C., and so God took him from Judah, the southern kingdom, to Israel, the northern kingdom, to give this message to Israel. Now, Israel, we have this background that Israel, the northern kingdom, wreaked havoc on the southern kingdom. And so you can imagine that this message probably wasn't something that Amos wanted to deliver, right? These people took advantage of his people. Why am I wanting to go up north to talk to those people at all? I'd rather just leave them alone. And yet he's going there and he's going to deliver this pretty unpleasant message to this kingdom that mistreated his people and his state. Verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars from Zion. Now what's this? This is a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now why Jerusalem? Well, Israel set up these places of idol worship in other major cities, right? And so if you go to Dan today, it's called Tel Dan. It's a part of the forestry. It's part of the national park system. If you go there today, you're going to see one of the best preserved places of idol worship at, at Tel Dan. And so this isn't just made up stuff. This is all accurate. Archaeologists can prove this. History proves this. And they also set up these places of idol worship in Bethel and also in Gilgal. But the best preserved evidence of Israel's idolatry of this time is found in Dan today. And so when it is written, the Lord utters his voice from Jerusalem, it's a reminder that the Lord establishes where his people are to worship him. And he chose Jerusalem to be the center of his worship, not these other cities that were set up for idol worship. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And we all know that Amos was a shepherd. And we all know how important it is for the sheep to have grass to graze on in order to live. He also knew how dependent on the land not only sheep were, but people were to produce food for safety from invaders. He knew how important the security of the land was. And so if it is unstable here, the pastures of the shepherds mourn. It's because of their disobedience. The top of Carmel withers. What is this about? Well, Carmel is the infamous site where the worshipers of Baal went to battle the prophet Elijah. And this is where Elijah battles these prophets of Baal. You can find this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so this is way before Amos' time. And with these established places of Israel, right, in Dan, in Gilgal, Bethel, it was a reminder God took down those idols, a bunch of them, in Carmel. He's not going to stand for it again. The top of Carmel withers. He's going to do this again. He's going to wipe out this idol worship again. So you see how Amos' message was not a pleasant one to receive from the Israelites who poured in all these resources to build these temples, these places of worship for these idols where the city was centered around this. And so when we're reading Amos, there's something to keep in mind with that context and also with this pattern that I think all of you can see there. There's this pattern in Amos' writing, this structure, and this pattern is going to be helpful to us in helping us understand what's written in this prophetic book. God worked with Amos 
to write in the style that he wrote and to follow this pattern that he wrote in this book. And you can tell that this book was written with a lot of thought, with a lot of knowledge. And if you're thinking about Amos being just a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore figs, how in the world does someone that probably did not receive an education write something so complex? It could only be divine intervention. And you can tell that this book was written with more than what this guy received in terms of an education. He's just a simple shepherd, right? He was not trained to write like this, but by the power of God, Amos did write this. And Amos systematically calls out all the surrounding Gentile nations to their transgressions against God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The next time we meet, we're going to talk about Judah and Israel, non-Gentile people. But this morning, we're just going to focus on the Gentile nations that he's focusing on here and noting their specific transgression as by revelation of God because back then it's not like they got a newspaper or internet reports or Yahoo News or whatever it is, right? He, how does this guy know all of this? How would a shepherd from the hills of Tekoa know the specific sins of a nation and then know the transgressions that actually come to fruition if we look at it as a prophecy? If you look through history, these things actually happen to these nations. It's only that God told him. God told him. God told Amos how they were going to be judged by their transgressions against God and against humanity. God worked with Amos to deliver this judgment in this pattern so that we would remember that all these people, they're not sinless. Now what's the pattern? Thus says the Lord for three transgressions, and then puts in the nation that has these transgressions, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they, and then it lists the transgression. So that's the pattern. And Amos gives these consistently structured prophetic statements to each of these respective nations and it doesn't mean that each country only had three transgressions or four that's not what this means like oh they've sinned four times or they have four transgressions the idea behind this pattern isn't the exact number of transgressions rather it's getting the point across that it's transgression upon transgression upon transgression and as you find this pattern for each respective country starting in verse 3 you can easily spot out this pattern in the following verses now why did Amos write like this well I think it was a way of teaching it was a way of informing people how God deals with people now you notice this pattern for three transgressions and for four and what this simply means is it's sin upon sin upon sin it's transgression upon transgression upon transgression so you see how patient God is with all of these nations. He doesn't throw down the hammer of judgment just because they did it once, twice, three times, four times. He doesn't hammer you every time that you sin, does he? You're all here. I'm sure you would have been hammered yesterday. right? You're all here. It's not that you're not guilty, because we all are. It's not that you got away with your transgression or your sin, but God is so patient to withhold judgment because you know what? He's your biggest cheerleader. He is hoping, he is praying, he is cheering for you to repent. To change so that it doesn't happen over and over and over again. But then there will come a time, if you continue in your ways, when enough's enough. That's it. Enough's enough. 
And that's what this pattern is getting across, that, you know what, enough's enough. It's not something that's been done once or a few times, even many times, but it's something that was done with no regard to God, no regard to people, and God's patience does have an end. Otherwise, it's by definition not patience, right? If you have patience, there has to be an ending towards that patience. And so, even though he exercises patience beyond anyone we can even know or fathom, his patience does end. Now, you know who to be most fearful of, don't you, in life? It is the most calm, collected, patient people that you have to watch out for. Right? You know that. Because angry people that are just angry all the time, yeah, just blow them off. Like, oh, they're just like that. It's no big deal. And you don't worry about them because you know that hey, it's just like that. But you know the patient, the quiet, the you know, calm and everything? You know those types, right? They're, they're just really cool and nothing bothers them. They're just cool for a long time. But then when enough's enough, dang. Like, oh. Oh, you know, my mom was, she was kind of volcanic, right? So when she went off, she just went off and says, hey, this mom, she's just an angry bird, well, whatever, right? But my dad, my dad's just super chill. Nothing bothers my dad, nothing. He's just like calm, whatever, just kicking back. But then when he reaches that boiling point, he's like, ooh, incoming. He's like, ooh, you're like, man, get out of the room, get out, get out, get out. He's just like, get out, because he's, I'm joking, partly. You get my point, right? See, God will not just sit back and observe all the transgressions of the world and think, oh, that's okay. That's okay. It's not a big thing. See, there's this righteous anger within God. There's this moral anger within God when, you know what? Enough's enough. Enough's enough. And you look at what John wrote about Jesus during Passover in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You guys are probably all familiar with this story. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. This is nunchuck Jesus right here we're talking about. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He was like, you get out and you're stinking animals too. Get out. And he poured out the coins. I just imagine Jesus is all gangster, right? He's like, Right? It's just like, of the money changers, and he overturned the tables. He's a bad dude. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. He was like, ready, right? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You think? You think? Now, you notice that none of the disciples talked about this. They just remembered. Right? They, they just looked at each other, and you're like, they're like. And he was like. They did not talk. They were going to talk later because this is irate Jesus over here. Don't mess right now. Right now, we just leave him be and let him do his thing. And right before this, though, what was Jesus doing? Right before this, he was partying at a wedding. You see the switch, it just flipped, man. 
he was hanging out with his moms, hanging out in a wedding in Cana. And right before this, he was having this good old time, drinking some awesome wine that he just made. And then, bam, incredible Hulk, right? Bruce Banner had enough. Like, I can't take this. My patience is up. Enough is enough. Made the whip, pours the coins, flips tables. He goes all ballistic. And I just imagine his disciples off to the side with their mouths open, and especially Peter's like, Oh my goodness. Like he was just like, oh man, what is going on here? This is Jesus. If someone never gets angry, you have to wonder if that person stands for anything. If they're useful for anything that's worthy of a cause. Right? There is a threshold within every person with any sense of morality when enough's enough. What are you going to do if a child is being abused right in front of your face, you're just going to be like, oh, it just, yeah. Is there nothing going to come out of you, out of your moral conscience, where your patience is past? The threshold is past. You have to, unless you're just immoral. If you're immoral, then you can just walk by. But if you have any moral compass within you, you have to act on that. That anger within you has to rise if you see an injustice like that. And this happens in all loving relationships, right? Parents with their children, coaches with their athletes or teachers with their students, musicians with their apprentices. When enough's enough and you have to exercise a correction, you have to correct something. So it is with our loving relationship with God. And he started the judgment with the countries, the people surrounding Israel. Now, these aren't the covenant people of God. Right? Judah and Israel are, but that doesn't mean that God ignores them. God still speaks to them. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for these transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Damascus was the capital city of Syria, what we know as Syria today. And countries were identified by their king or by their capital city or by their major cities. God's patience ran out with Syria because they had this unfathomable brutality toward Gilead, who they defeated in war. Now what did they do? They threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. What does that mean? Well, one possibility is that when they conquered Gilead, they laid the people of Gilead flat on the ground and they took these large iron threshing sleds that were used to transport grains and they ran it over the people that they conquered. Just incredible cruelty. Now, some say that this is just a metaphor and that's not really what happened and it really didn't happen that way, but I tend to think that it did happen that way. And even if it didn't happen this exact way, what is the metaphor getting across? It is painting a picture of extreme cruelty. So whatever it is, whether it's this iron sled or something else that they did, it was inhumane. It was cruel. It was barbaric. God had enough. And God's judgment would come upon them. And here's the judgment, verses 4 and 5. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This happened. If you look into history, this happened. And if you look into the Bible, which many archaeologists and historians look at for these proofs, you look at 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9. And this is where it is. 
the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. The Bible is true. The prophecies of the Bible are true. If anyone says, oh, that book's made up, how can you possibly make up a prophecy so accurate as this? It's not written after the fact and to prove history. This is written before it happened. And Kings is a historical book, so it's reporting what happened in the past. That's not a prophecy book. And so Amos prophesies about it. Kings confirms it. World history confirms it. The word of the Lord is true. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of God's end for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Now, Gaza was a city of the Philistines, and they enslaved an entire population of people to be sold into slavery. Now, back then, it was standard practice that if you took soldiers from battle, then they would become slaves. But the Philistines kind of took it a step further. They enslaved all the inhabitants of a town, not just the soldiers that fought in the war, but everyone. They took them and they sold them to Edom. And this is how twisted it is. Edom, the Edomites, were enemies of the Philistines. So they didn't care. They were making money. If we sell these people, even though these guys are enemies, hey, who cares? They were making money anyway. So they were selling these people just to profit off of them. Verses 7 and 8. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. What are all these cities? What is this Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron? What is all this stuff? These are all the main cities in the Philistine territory. Kind of like God saying, I'm going to judge the United States, Washington, D.C., New York City, L.A., San Francisco, all the big cities of the United States. That's what's happening here. All the major cities of the Philistines listed here. You're going to get it. You're going to get wiped out. And you know what? The Philistines don't exist any longer. Ever met a Philistine? I mean, you can go back to the region. You're not going to meet one there either. They're no longer there. God's word is true. They're wiped out. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So Tyre, where's Tyre? Tyre is in Lebanon. They were guilty of the same thing as the Philistines, right? They were involved in human trafficking. Taking people against their will, stripping them of any dignity, using them however the tyrant wanted to use them, treating them as nobodies, nothing. No honor, no dignity, nothing. Treating them however the tyrant wanted to treat them, and to make matters worse, Lebanon, they broke the covenant of brotherhood. The covenant of brotherhood was made between King David of Israel and King Hiram of Tyre. And you can see back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, where this relationship was kind of growing. Right? It says, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. These guys were allies. These guys were friends. King Hiram loved David. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, David's son, 
when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. See, Israel and Tyre had this alliance. They had this political alliance. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 12, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Hiram sent the cedars and the cypress wood for building the temple, and Lebanon was instrumental in building the temple. Israel could not do it on their own because these guys from Lebanon are the ones that had all the handiwork. They had all these skills. They used this wood. That's where this wood came from. But the covenant of the brotherhood was broken, and people were sold into slavery. God had enough. Judgment was coming. Verse 10, So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and I shall devour her strongholds. Whenever you read of the walls of a city falling, that means that city's done. That city's gone. And so Tyre was once this beautiful coastal city, the major city of the ancient Phoenicians. It's gone. This place used to be extremely wealthy. It was extremely influential in the known world. It's an extremely powerful kingdom. Why? Because these guys controlled the entire Mediterranean Sea. All the trade that happened from the Far East into Europe all had to go through these guys. And they controlled all of it. Imagine the power that you had if you controlled that. Now what does history tell us? History informs us that there was a partial destruction of Tyre by King Nebuchadnezzar, but there was a complete destruction of Tyre by Alexander the Great. All of this also prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 26 and 27. You see how the word of God is true? Anyone who debates that does not know history. Verse 11, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So as if purchasing human slaves from the Philistines and Lebanon wasn't evil enough, Edom takes it a step further. They have this excessive hostility toward their brother, this irrational hostility towards their brother. Who was this brother? To find out, we need to look at Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. It says this, These are the generations of Esau. That's who Edom is. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Who's Esau? The twin brother of Jacob, right? who later was named Israel. And they settled in the area around the Dead Sea, southeast of Israel, in Judah. The Edomites are brothers to the Israelites. They have the same descendants, right? Abraham and Isaac. Now what happened? It's in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20-22. through 22. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Edom pursued their brother with the sword with no compassion. They harbored anger and wrath. And just like their ancestor Saul had for his brother Jacob. 
when restoration and reconciliation was to be sought because that's God's heart, they did not do that. Here's the judgment. So I will send a fire upon Teman, this is the capital of Edom, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Who were the last recorded Edomites that we know of? Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Edomite. Herod the Great and his descendants were the last we know of the Edomites. Right? Herod was an Edomian, an Edomite. And so it's ironic that the Herodium, what Herod built, right less than a mile away from Tekoa, where Amos was from. This is the last of the Edomites. The Edomites are no longer around. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. The Ammonites are from modern day Jordan and they were hungry for power. They were willing to do anything to expand their kingdom. This barbaric cruelty going as far as ripping open a woman's womb while she was alive and killing her baby right in front of her. And you'll notice that the Syrians already destroyed Gilead in verse 3, right? The Syrians already took these people out. These are weak, defeated people. So what happened? The Ammonites moved in right after this. Already a defeated people. They wanted to expand their borders, so they go in to this already defeated people, and they enact these acts of terrorism against these women who are pregnant, striking fear into all the Gilead people, ripping open these women right in front of everybody else, telling them, don't even think about your next generation. Don't even think about it. We're taking all of them. You see the cruelty. Verse 14, so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour the strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Amon was also judged by God. With shouting on the day of battle, that's in reference to war. With a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, that is in reference to how quickly and furiously this war is going to come to an end. It's not even a contest. This is just going to happen so fast, you're going to be done. You're going to be wiped out. And we know this from history. That the king of Ammon, along with his sons, were taken captive by the king of Babylon. Right after Judah was, Ammon was wiped out. It wasn't even a contest. They were taken out so fast, like a whirlwind. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Moab was south of Judah. The Moabs were guilty of breaking into the tomb of Edom's former king and who they already defeated and they desecrated the remains of Edom's hero. Right? Just think of the heroes of our country and some invader coming in and just to make a point, digging up all those things and desecrating those remains, saying like, you know, these guys are nothing. Abraham Lincoln, whatever. We'll treat your leaders like nothing. Your history is nothing. Everything you have, you represent nothing. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst. I will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. The Moabites and the Edomites, they wronged each other. No one was right. 
they wronged each other. It's not that Edom was innocent, but the Moabites went beyond justice in their revenge. And Moab will also be judged, and they will be severely defeated in war. Okay, so we went through a bunch of verses about history. Know that the Bible's true because it has its prophecies, and then the history proves the prophecy, and history proves that Amos' prophecies to be true. All this prophecy is helpful in showing us that the word of God is true and prophetic. Okay, great. Now what? How does this apply to us? Well, I don't think that it takes a genius to figure out that we're not all that different from the nations who received judgment back in this time. That we're in no place to judge the nations of the 8th century B.C. that received these judgments because I think that we're actually awfully similar in our transgressions. Is our nation or other nations that maybe you're from, are they absent of hatred, of cruelty, fighting, jealousy, greed? I mean, are we innocent of these things? This is one of the issues I have against humanism. Have we really evolved in our human-based morality? If we have, why are there more slaves today than any other time in history? We saw that these nations were guilty because of their human trafficking, which no doubt included sex trafficking. We know that. And there is more of that today than any other time in world history. Why do we have billboards telling people that prostitution with a child is wrong? Who doesn't know that? Why is that necessary that that's up there? This is our nation. Pornography and everything associated with it, child porn, porn addictions, all of it is on the rise. All of it. Sexual immorality is on the rise. And God sees all of it. He's just. Sooner or later, people will be held accountable for their actions. Where enough is enough. Now, notice something about these nations, all of them. They're all Gentiles. They're all pagan. So why would God speak to them? Why would God speak to people who don't even believe in Him? This is why. Because they're still accountable to their actions regardless whether they believe in God or not. See, ignorance about God is not an excuse for God to withhold judgment from you. We were all made in God's image and within each one of us is a conscience, a morality between what is right and what is wrong. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. What does this mean? It means that even when Gentiles are in pagans, they don't have the Bible, but they do what is right and they know what is wrong. Within them, written is the law of God because they were created in God's image, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. No human has an excuse of moral ignorance because every human was created in the image of God, and within every human is a conscience that speaks to oneself. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's happened to our world? That. So you may ask, why bother with evangelism? Why bother with discipleship if everyone has God written on their heart and their mind? It's a good question. When we share the gospel, we don't share the gospel of condemnation. We are not condemning people at all. We are talking to a condemned people that they're condemned already. They're already condemned. See, we're all guilty of judgment. That's why we need the gospel. We need that to be shared with us. Now, let's jump back to Amos because I want to point something out to you there. Notice this. And I think this is important for Christians. Amos doesn't call out these pagan countries because of their religion. Because of their worldview. He doesn't call them out because of religion. He doesn't call them out for faith. None of them worshipped God, the Lord, Yahweh. They all had their own gods. They all had their own religions. And Amos doesn't call any of them out on their religion, on their worldview. What does he call them out on? Does it have anything to do with church? Anything to do with religion? Anything to do with worship? No. None of it. God calls them out on how they've lived their lives, how they've conducted their lives. Why? Because that's sin. We're all condemned by how we live. We're all condemned by that. So you fast forward the application of sharing the gospel with people. We don't share the gospel to condemn people. We share the gospel because they are already condemned because of how they live their lives, how they conduct their lives. We're all condemned. We all need Jesus. We all need God. We need God to intervene so that we regard each other as people made in His image, that we're not objects. Otherwise, we follow in the steps of Syria, verses 3-5. through five. We need God to intervene so that we don't value money over people Otherwise, we may follow in the footsteps of the Philistines. Verses 6-8. through eight. We need God to intervene so that honesty and loyalty to promises made before God's people are highly valued. Verses 9-11. through 11. Otherwise, we follow in the steps of Lebanon. We need God to intervene so that utter hatred is not practiced. Otherwise, we follow in the steps of the Edomites. Verses 11 and 12. We need God to intervene so that we aren't cruel to those who are weaker than us. Verses 13 through 15. 
Otherwise, we follow in the steps of the Ammonites. We need God to intervene so that we don't exercise bitter vengeance. Otherwise, we follow in the steps of the Moabites. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. See, God's judgment is directed towards those who are like these six nations. Now, the question for us is, are any of these poisonous characteristics within us individually? Are they inside of us? See, we don't have to worry about humanism, atheists, or any other type of religion. Being an atheist is a religion, by the way, just to let you know. Because they exercise faith. Right? They exercise faith. And so we don't have to concern ourselves with the things that argue against Christianity. We need to concern ourselves with living with godly character, which is impossible without God. And just because we go to church and we believe the right things to pass a Bible exam and do all the right Christian things that we're supposed to do does not mean that you are Christ-like. The Bible will prove that when we look at Judah and Israel because these are God's people. Right? These are God's own people, but they were guilty of serving themselves. They were guilty of selfishness, and they also received judgment. See, whenever we walk over people not caring about how others are treated as long as we get what we want. Whenever we are motivated by personal profit, regardless of what we do to get it. Whenever we feed our sinful appetites, treating people like objects rather than the precious humans created in the image of God. Whenever we harbor resentment towards others rather than working through it with God and receiving freedom from it. If any of us have a resemblance to the traits that we find in Amos chapter 1 and 2, we need to remember that the Lord roars from Zion. He judges injustice because He is just. Amos' messages here to these six nations, they're very relevant to each one of us personally, to our church, to our nation. Reminding us that God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of justice. That ignorance or any other thing that you use to justify your actions are not reasons not to live a godly life before an all-knowing God. He has presented Himself before you. May we heed the words of Amos this morning. Let's pray. Father, your words are piercing to the heart, and I ask God that it is more than just that feeling of discomfort, but that it changes us. If there are any of these aspects that exist in our life, Father, thank you so much for your patience thus far, that you haven't come down so hard on us, because you are cheering for us, you are hoping that we come to repentance. And so, God, I ask that people here would realize where they are and if they need to repent, that they would move in that direction, Lord. May your mercy and grace be upon them, not taking advantage of your patience, knowing that you are a just God. In Jesus' name, amen.